Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We are so glad that you are with us here this morning, whether you are in person or you're joining us online, perhaps you're a guest with us, or maybe you've worshiped in this community for any amount of time. We are just grateful that you'd spend a portion of your weekend worshiping and learning here with us. My name is Jed, and it's a privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And I've noticed the last several weeks that I've been up here, I'm actually seeing a lot of unfamiliar faces, which is a good thing. And so if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, or if I just haven't connected with you in a while, I thought I'd give you a little bit of an update on how things are going in our family's life. Maybe you can get to know us just a little bit more. So I thought I'd start with a few pictures of our kiddos. Let me begin with this uh, series of our triplets. Um, That's Truy, Huey, and Dewey. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I don't have triplets. Truy is our third born. That was his hundredth day of TK. Mrs. Hayden, if you ever listen to this, thank you so much for investing in life, that little guy. Uh, he was supposed to dress up as an older individual, and he just looks so, so cute in that picture. So that's Truy. You've heard about him before. And then the next picture is our oldest. There's Thadden. Uh, he just started doing karate a few months ago, and he was testing for his yellow belt. He's standing there next to Sensei Will. They've got a remarkable program over there, and I'm just so, so impressed by the work that they're doing with these young kids. And you've heard about Truy and Thadden, right? Our third and our first. And I started realizing that being a middle child is hard, right? I'm a middle child. We kind of get forgotten about. And so we're constantly vying for people's attention. And I was looking through my old sermon notes, realizing some way, somehow, after eight years of life, I have yet to really share about our middle child, Titus. I thought that's messed up. I've shared about Truy, I've shared about that, and I've just forgotten the middle child just like myself. And so I thought this morning that I'd share a little picture of Ty. This is him a few weeks ago, February 9th. It was a Thursday, and it was actually his eighth birthday. Isn't that awesome? Now, the kid actually plays baseball and football and soccer and basketball and all those wonderful things, but you'll notice his outfit perhaps, and you'll see that be for the Brooklyn Dodgers way back in the day. And I wanted to begin this morning by sharing about how Titus, I almost said Thadden, Titus, and a group of second graders, his peers, a few weeks ago on his eighth birthday absolutely inspired me as I was preparing for this message. Now, Janine Harris, she's one of our teachers at Antelope Hills, where our kids go to school, and she also attends here, invited us, all of our families and parents and older siblings of our second graders to take part in what's called the Wax Museum exhibit. Have you guys heard of that before? It's really, really 
remarkable. She explained that all the second graders at Antelope Hills would be spread out strategically across the blacktop in full costume and character. And in front of every one of them, there would be a little dot, and you could go up to any of these second graders, any of them, any of the what seemed like a hundred of them, and step on their dot. And you saw Ty, he was in that pose, right? You step on Ty's dot, and he immediately goes, Hi, my name is Jackie Robinson. I was born on January 31st, 1919 in Cairo, Egypt. I am most known for being the first African-American baseball player, and I broke the color barrier. And he goes on through this speech, and it was so, so wild to see kid after kid, second grader after second grader, going from this still wax museum pose into this wonderful monologue about these wonderful characters throughout history. And I was wearing my sunglasses, and I actually had to step over to the side. I got a little bit emotional listening to these children. And so I wanted to share about some of the, the kids that I met, or I should say historical figures that day. I've got to find it in my phone. I, I stepped off to the side, and I t- wrote down that I met the first woman aviator and the tallest president, and the greatest Mexican artist, and the Scottish scientist who discovered penicillin, and the first woman in space, and the first black president, and the first president, and the tallest president, and the inventor of the airplane, and the first female Nobel Prize winner who invented the x-ray machine, and the first officer in the United States Marine Corps, and the 2022 World Cup's golden ball winner, Argentina's most beloved soccer player, and the longest-serving matriarch in Great Britain's history, and the youngest Nobel Prize winner, a young Pakistani woman fighting for girls' educational rights in her country. And those are just a few, those are just a few of the figures I met that morning. They're second graders. And it got me thinking. I started looking very closely across the blacktop because I knew I was preparing for this message. I was hoping I'd find some kid with a staff just frozen (laughs) with their arms up, like preparing to part the sea of reeds. And I'd step on their dot, and then they would prepare to launch into a monologue about Moses, and I'd get to give them credit for this message. But alas, I couldn't find any. And so I thought instead I would consult with ChatGPT, You may have heard about this AI-generated text-based chatbot. And at our school, they're actually encouraging us to consult ChatGPT because of the wealth of information available to us in, in milliseconds or seconds of time. And so I have a little bit of a video of a screen grab for me this past week consulting with ChatGPT. It might be a little bit hard to see if you're in the back, but I'll explain it on the back end after the quick video.
You caught me. You caught me. I'm sorry. Chat GPT, thank you for writing this sermon. It's not that great, but thank you. Oh man, what a fun, fun little time. If you're in the back and you cannot see, I just asked ChatGPT to write me a little wax museum speech like a second grader in the first person, and ChatGPT proceeded to give five historical facts. Hi, I'm Moses, and then launched into this little bit, which I thought was super, super cute. And I thought, you know, if that were it, if that were the message for today, that'd be wonderful for you. However, ChatGPT did not write this message. It's not going to last five minutes. It'll go a little bit longer than that. But I'm excited to share about what we do with this short passage of Scripture when we look at the birth of Moses and consider the ways that his birth narrative has great implications for our lives and his story for you and for me. And across the rest of this series, my hope is that you can remember some of the things that we addressed this morning to frame how we understand this complicated person who we know as Moses. So the goal today is I'm going to begin with just a few quick interesting facts from his birth narrative, and then afterwards I'm going to talk about some ways that those things can speak to you and I today. So here's the first fill in the blank for you. He is born into the proper tribe. And if you have your Bibles, it'll also be up on the screens. Exodus chapter 2, which Sister Anne read from, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. And what's interesting about this time is that in Israel's history, because they are not a full-fledged nation yet, the Levites have not yet been designated to play the special priestly role and have those responsibilities that later on in Moses' life would be revealed to him. In other words, when he is being born, and it shares that his mother and his father were both Levites, we are essentially being told that Moses is pre, pre, pre-qualified. His pedigree is the best. God is going to set him apart for special circumstances, and his father and his mother, without even realizing that they were of the right type and form, how he can be special. And here's your next fill in the blank. Another interesting exegetical fact, his mother sees that he is good and places him in an ark. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plashed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. And we can't see it here. And we'll talk about it, and Britt referenced it last week. If you haven't had a chance, you can go back and listen to his message. He gives us the overarching narrative, the book of Exodus. It's a great primer for what we're going to be studying throughout this series. Go back and listen to it if you haven't had the chance. But when we talk about Moses and we say that history and tradition places him as the author of the Pentateuch, in other words, the first five books of our Hebrew scriptures or what we know as our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's fascinating to consider what parts of the Pentateuch could actually be traced to him. 
And it's not as plain and simple as saying, well, Moses wrote all these things, and biblical scholarship knows that it's a lot more complicated than that, of course, because in the Pentateuch itself, and we've talked about this in the past, Moses dies. And so he is not narrating his own death. But it's fascinating to think that if, in fact, this birth narrative could have been traced to Moses penning these autobiographical parts, he would have included two very distinct words that harken back to the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures, Genesis. And when it says that his mother saw that he was a fine baby, which is often translated that way in the English, in fact, in the Hebrew, we see the same word that is used to describe how God looks upon creation after creating and sees that it is good. In other words, if Moses is writing this, he's saying, yeah, I'm pretty special. His mom looks at him and sees that it, he, is good. In the same way that God would declare goodness and blessing over all that he has created in the cosmos. And then secondly, as Moses perhaps writes this narrative of his birth, he talks about his mom placing him in what we see in the English as a papyrus basket. But in the Hebrew, it's the same word that is only used the other time in your Old Testament scriptures, in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, where God calls Noah and asks him to build a what? An ark. It's that same word. And so here in just three or so little verses that we have, we find Moses saying, I came from the right family. God declares, my mom sees that I'm good. And I'm placed in an ark, and I'm going to be saved from the waters. Here's your next fill in the blank. When it comes to his birth narrative, his family members aren't named. They're not named yet. You know, this is common. It's not as if Moses is saying, I don't care about my family. We see other ancient texts where there are actually similar stories. We can talk about Sargon, who was a king in near eastern Mesopotamia. He has this story where he is drawn from the waters out of a basket as well. And so we look at Moses. He is front and center, and we have these figures around him who are playing parts in his story, but we don't get to get their identities yet. And as Exodus unfolds, we will encounter some of these people. So here's your next fill in the blank. He is saved by four women, including Pharaoh's daughter, but the majority of his childhood is a mystery. And we'll return, I think, at the very end of this message to the idea of those others in his life. But oftentimes when we read this little narrative, we think about his mom, his sister, and then Pharaoh's daughter. But there's one more socioeconomic person who is in there. It's, it's the slave, the female attendant of Pharaoh's daughter. So four women take part in this rescuing of this little baby boy who should have, by all accounts, been killed because of the edict placed by the Pharaoh to slaughter all the first, or excuse me, the male Hebrew boys. So those are just a few of the things that we can glean or see or mine exegetically from this small portion 
of Scripture, but I imagine if you're like me, you're not just thinking I want to hear some interesting facts about Moses' birth. I want to see how God's work in his life continues into our world today. And so I'd like to present a few things to ground us this morning based off of this Scripture. And your next fill-in-the-blank is this. Moses' birth story reminds us that our lives begin before our choice. Our lives begin before our choice. And you and I know how important choice is. We can think about the vast amount. It it seems innumerable. The amount of choices and decisions that you and I make every single day, consciously, unconsciously, automatically, subconsciously, we make choices all the time. And yet for something so determinate, something so impactful, something so wild, where we would be born, at what time in history, and to what kind of parents, or to what kind of family, or to what political circumstances, and the gravity and the weight of these social and political forces that would be pressing on into our development as people, we do not get to say or choose how that comes to be. Our lives begin before our choice. And it's sobering. It's sobering whether or not we believe we've been born into a privileged state or we look at life as incredibly difficult. It is sobering and humbling to consider that the trajectory of our lives and so much of what happens begins from us not getting to choose. You think about the life of Moses. He has no idea that he's being born into a circumstance where he should be killed just because he is a little Hebrew boy. And his parents, they're not immigrants, but they're foreigners. And they're foreigners in this place called Egypt in a way that to be called a Hebrew would have been degrading. He, he, he's seen as a lower than. And then he's set into the circumstance where his parents can't keep him, but they decide that they're going to try and find a way to spare his life. And so they place him in this ark along the Nile River under the desert sun at risk for Nile crocodiles and hippopotami. And it is a wild environment for him to be placed in. And his older sister, who we can ascertain based off of other numbers we see, is somewhere between the ages of five and seven. Five and seven, his older sister is, waits by the bank and watches and wonders what's going to happen to her little baby brother. And then she sees this person who has slaves with them walking into the Nile, and she hears this individual call out to one of the slaves to go get that basket. It's brought over, and this little girl is watching, and her heart's pounding. That's, that's her baby brother inside of that basket. And she starts to hear him cry. It's a familiar cry. She knows that cry. She's been around that cry for three months. And as that basket lid is being opened, the eyes of this person who we now know, based off of the text, is Pharaoh's daughter exclaimed, it's one of the Hebrew babies. And this five to seven-year-old jumps out of the reeds. 
And we don't know if this was the plan or if this sweet girl had it in her mind suddenly to offer up, but she calls to Pharaoh's daughter and asks if she would like to have her find a Hebrew woman to come nurse this baby. And Pharaoh's daughter says, go, find her. And Moses' mother is summoned to the banks where she placed her son. Can you imagine that moment? She birthed that child. She carried that baby. She wasn't sure if he was going to make it, and suddenly he is being taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. And oftentimes we hear Pharaoh's daughter and we think, well, this is actually a pretty cool thing. He's going to be born into this royal place. But remember that Pharaoh, he had a whole harem of hundreds of women. They were disposable to him. He had many, many children, sons and daughters. This, this isn't as if this is just the perfect situation for this child to be born into. We have no idea, and that's why I said the rest of his childhood is a mystery. We have no idea the actual circumstances that Moses was born into, but what we do know is that in those critically developmental stages of his life, he is forming attachment with his own mom, not knowing any of this is happening and after he's come to age, he's given up for what must be one of the hardest adoptions in all of history. And Pharaoh's daughter, she, she has no idea, of course, who this woman is. In her mind, she's doing the best thing for this little baby boy that she had pity and compassion on. I'm giving you in just a few minutes a sense of the circumstances and context surrounding the birth of this little boy. And when we think about the life of Moses, when in the rest of this series we see his complications, we see who he is as a person, would you remember that his beginnings, his start makes sense for why? so much would be disturbing. Which leads to my next fill in the blank. After our lives begin without our choice, it makes sense that across our lifespan, we're bound to struggle with our identity. Does that make sense? I don't know what the circumstances surrounding your birth were like. There's no way for me to know. In fact, I, I don't entirely know the circumstances surrounding my life. Dad, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can tell me sometime. <laughs> we're, we're born into this, but it makes sense that for every person in this room, regardless of whether or not you're connected to your biological parents, your family of origin, or you are really close to whatever parent or guardian or family member that you had, or you do not, whether you speak glowingly or there's so much pain, it still makes sense that across your lifespan, you and I would continue to struggle with thoughts towards ourselves and who we are and what's in here and if any of it matters and what God, if there is a God, is doing in my 
life. Do you know what that is like? Do you know what it's like to think, I know what I'm doing with my life. And then five or ten years later think, I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. Do you know what it's like to feel so confident about your decisions? Only to later on think, why would I make that decision? Don't it's like to find so much worth in your job or your relationship status or your sports, your academic endeavors or your friendships or whatever it is. You know what it's like to place so much hope in those things and how you can present yourself or introduce yourself at that next place or gathering and then a few weeks later or a few months down the road feel like, I hate this person. After my mom got sick with liver cancer, I've shared some of this before with you in the past, and, and, and she ended up passing away when I was 15. I was in the middle of my adolescence, a time when our identity is supposed to become more and more solidified, and so I think it does make sense for me that so much of my mental disturbedness would come from a time when losing this figure who I was supposed to be so connected with and yet had some dysfunction with that I'd struggle to think, what am I going to do with myself? And so I started repeating things to my brain as a means or mechanism to survive what was happening. These panic and anxiety attacks where I would lay on my floor in fetal position, crying and sobbing and watching her she looked like she were a concentration camp victim those final days of her life. I mean, just emaciated skin and bones and watching what she looked like and feeling so guilty that I would pray that God would take her away and then feeling so bad after she passed away, thinking I must have caused that. And I wasn't sure if I was going to make it. And so after years of sorting through some of those things, and trust me, they're not all sorted through, I started coming up with ways that I could remind myself to stay grounded and to not forget that God was still active in my life. And so I'd come up with things to repeat to myself. And one of the things I would say, life is about learning how not to give up. I said, life is about learning about how not to give up, because I knew that my inclination was to want to give up. And so another thing that you've heard us say from this stage and me share from this stage is this little line that I'll repeat to myself, and I'll say, this is my discipleship. This is my discipleship. And we know the word disciple means learner. A better way to put this would be lifelong Learner, when Jesus says, go and make disciples, go and make lifelong learners of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, putting them into me, Christ is saying, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded to you. And I'm with you to the very end of the age. It's wild that Jesus, at his great commissioning, would say, go and make lifelong learners learners. And then we'd end up in the community where so many of us are so resistant to new, difficult things. And so when I say this is my discipleship, I'm trying to remind myself that whatever juncture I find myself in in this life, 
even if I don't want to do it. And it's far from how I would want it to be when I say this is my discipleship. I'm trying to communicate to my heart that God is doing his work to conform me into the likeness of his son, even if I don't feel like it. And the reason why I tell you that is because in a moment, I'm just going to fire off three of the many things that I repeat to myself over and over and over again that I have actually taken specifically from the life and the works of Moses in another book in Scripture. And so here you're next fill in the blanks. Things, these values, these paradigms, these perspectives of lifelong learning that I repeat to myself over and over and over again. We live and we die. We live and we die. It went before me. It will go after me. And it's just people. We live and we die. It went before me and it will go after me. And it's just people. I started writing these things in journals that I have from college. I have documents all across my computer where I'm trying to work through something. It could be for school. It could be for a sermon. And I start with some of these values and I'll just type out, we live and we die. It went before me. It will go after me. And it's just people. We live and we die. It went before me. It will go after me. And it's just people. And that's really, really hard to confess. But I'm telling you, you get credit for these things. I make this stuff up. Just things that I've synthesized from Scripture to help remind me of my place. And this morning, Pam, she opened up our service reading from Psalm chapter 90. Can I read this to you? Read the entirety of it. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us back to dust and say, turn back, you mortals. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past or like a watch in the night. You sweep them as in people away. They are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are consumed by your anger. By your wrath we are overwhelmed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days pass away under your wrath. Our years come to an end like a sigh. The days of our life are 70 years or perhaps 80 if we are strong. Even then their span is only toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. So teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. Turn, O Lord, how long? Have compassion on your servant. Satisfy in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be manifest to your servants and let your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and prosper for us the work of our hands. Oh, prosper the work of our hands. This is the only piece of poetry, the only song that we have preserved that was written by Moses. 
And it's fascinating to consider when in his life he may have written this. He talks about how we only live 70 or 80 or so years. And so my speculation is that Moses actually wrote this before the Exodus, sometime when he was still in Egypt, right? Because we see that Moses, by tradition, lives 120 years. These three generations are 40 times over. So you think about Moses writing this stuff before his life gets really, really wild. Can you imagine what type of song he'd write after the fact? I don't want to know. He already sounds like he is struggling with what life is, and there's a lot of sadness and heaviness here. And when I say these things, that we live and we die, and it went before me, and it will go after me, and it's just people, perhaps you're saying, Jed, you sound like such a Debbie Downer. Are you just like all about nihilism or something? When are we going to get to the happy stuff? I I think about other passages of Scripture that remind me of this, and I won't get to it because there's so much that we could read, but if you haven't had a chance, read Ecclesiastes sometime, right? It's my favorite book in all of Scripture, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, or vanity of vanities, everything is vanities, in the Hebrew, hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. Now, I didn't try this beforehand, and Kurt, if you're watching, Kurt Grutzmacher left this in our worship center, so I'm going to use it now for an illustration. I didn't try this beforehand. Let's see if this works. I mean, it's kind of working. Can you see it from there? Do you hear it? Did you? Hevel. Vapor. Mist. Your life. My life. Here. Gone. That might sound depressing, but it's not. When we see it this way, when we come to terms with what that is, we start to consider what is it that really matters. It's not even hissing anymore. It was just Alka-Seltzer taps. What is my life and your life? Remember how I said that we hadn't met Moses' family members yet? And the others? Let me take you to Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. Amram married Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. It's in this long list of a genealogy of Moses. Do you see who's missing from there? His sister. Now, there's something else. It's it's very common for the daughters and for the sisters to be diminished because they really were in this patriarchal society less than. They really were. And so even though in Exodus chapter 15, we see Miriam, Moses' older sister, as the first woman prophet in Scripture, if you look at Moses' life, and we're not going to get to it because it's in Numbers, Numbers chapter 12, there's this really really 
terrible scene between Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And you can see the conflict within these three siblings. But there's even more here. And we say that Amram married Jochebed, his aunt. Did you catch that? Remember how earlier I said he was born into the proper tribe, the the Levites, he was pre-qualified, how later in his life God would reveal that the house of Levi and his descendants would have those priestly important roles, and that's supposed to be this wonderful thing. Well, God will also reveal later on in the law that Moses receives that having a relationship or a marriage with your father's sister is an abomination. In other words, we find at the very beginning of Moses' life, even though it seems picturesque and it seems like it's all set up, there's already dysfunction here. And every single human being that has feet on this planet cannot escape that that is here for you and for me. And yet, when we reflect on ourselves and when we reflect on life often we can do something which there is goodness to this may i read from you hebrews in the new testament chapter 11 verse 23 by faith moses was hidden by his parents for three months after his birth because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict by faith moses when he was grown up refused to be called a pharaoh of son of pharaoh's daughter a son of pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of god than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered abuse suffered for the christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of egypt for he was looking ahead to the reward by faith he left egypt unafraid of the king's anger for he persevered as though he saw him who is invisible by faith he kept the passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of israel and we have this long section in hebrews where person after person these legends these heroes of faith are lifted up and exclaimed but may i remind you when we remember their stories we see it's not all that it's just cracked up to be so here is your second to last fill in the blank christ is always looking for ways to remind us of his faithfulness. Christ is. And this isn't me just finding a way to see Christ in Moses' birth, even though Jesus himself says that he can teach through the entirety of the scriptures, and he is there. We find the earliest Christ followers looking back on people in their history, trying to grapple with the fact that Christ was already present, doing work. But it would be wrong for us to think that ultimately the writer of Hebrews or anyone in Scripture, be it Moses or others, were trying to make it about them, even though, of course, as human beings, so much of it is about our perspective and our lives. The goal for us is to remember His faithfulness, because when it's His faithfulness to us, then it makes it less about whether or not I deserved that. I'd like to invite up our worship team. And as I'm doing that, I was reminded this past week I was sitting with our women's ministry director, Court, and you saw Pam. Pam didn't say it earlier, but she was our women's pastor, and she 
said she's a volunteer. She is. She's wonderful. But I was sitting with, with Court, and we were talking about the most recent Galentine's event that happened just this past week, and just this, this moment during where it, we're presented with it, the lack of connection sometimes. We have all these people around us, and it's like, where are my people? Do I really matter here? She had this line. She, she said, everyone wants to be the chosen one. Everyone wants to be chosen. Everyone wants to feel like they were pursued and brought in. And that's true. It'd be really easy to think that that is the goal. It'd be really easy to think in a series on Moses, we're saying the goal is to be like Moses, to be chosen like Moses, to do as Moses did, when in fact what we'll find throughout this series is when we see Moses, we see someone who actually just looks like us. We see someone who looks like us, a troubled history and a troubled story, and yet throughout we see the faithfulness of God. And so this week, as you leave from this place, I had two things that I'd perhaps ask you to consider. The first, on the back of your note sheet, if, if you have the time, I, I gave a little sample of a wax museum speech that I wrote about myself. And maybe this week, you can take that same format and you can have a wax museum speech. Because in this speech, we start by making it sound like it's about us, but we turn our attention to Christ. Here's mine. I said, hi, my name is Jed. I was born December 12th in 1988 in San Diego, California. I'm most known for spending a lifetime learning and trying to trust that God actually loves me. Did you know that when I was 12, a college student named Nick shared about Christ's love in a way that still impacts me today? A fun fact about me is that as much as I struggled, I was continually surprised by God, even when I didn't deserve to be. I made a difference in our world today because I kept clinging to the hope that God is reconciling all things. I'd encourage you to take some time. Write your own wax museum speech like a second grader might about you, but do everything that you can to turn the attention to him. And if you're struggling to do that, that's okay, because here's your very last fill in the blank. This is what I will leave you with today. What difference would it make to narrate your story in a hopeful way because God is working in the lives of those around you. Instead of just saying, God, what are you doing in my life? What would happen if in place of that you looked around this worship center or when you were outside, you looked around the people in their vehicles and you recognized that the same God who was working in the lives of all those famous historical figures that I talked about in the beginning is the same God who is intimately concerned about those second graders who are animating these things. And every single person, the seven point so billion people on this planet, Christ is intimately concerned with. And when you find yourself wondering if there's anything in this life that is worth it or matters or worthwhile, would you look around and see that if God is working the lives of others, He's working in yours as well. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. 
We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.